Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand, please, and turn again to the ninth chapter of the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 24 will serve as our text this morning. The title of the message is The Absurdity of Judgmental Clay. This text may very well be the one, Dr. Jim Boyce says, that the Apostle Paul had in mind, uh, the Apostle Peter had in mind when he wrote in 2 Peter 3 that some of Paul's teachings are hard to understand. But we believe that the word was given as God's revelation. It's meant to be understood. And so we humbly come before the Father today and ask His help in rightly teaching and dividing the word and rightly understanding it. At issue is the nature and character of God. I can't think of much more important than that. A.W. Tozer says, what we think of when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's right. Paul had been preaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He has been sent as an apostle, not only to Jewish folks like himself, but to Gentiles as well. In fact, the majority of his converts were not Jews at all. They were Gentiles. And this was objectionable to many of Paul's Jewish peers. Their thinking went like this. If Jesus was truly the Messiah, the Jews would have recognized him as such. And yet the obvious fact was that most of the Jewish folks were not recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. And so that led to the second objection. If God has set aside Israel, as it seems he has, to bring in Gentiles into his covenant, that means God has violated his covenant with Israel. And that means, Paul, that you're calling God a liar. That's a very serious objection, isn't it? And that led to a third objection, which is if God does not choose to save all Israelites, but only a remnant, that means God's unfair or unjust. Paul, you're saying God is unjust. Well, Paul, of course, dismantles those objections one after the other here in Romans chapter 9. He does so primarily through arguments through history, specifically biblical history. He points out through the Old Testament that it has never been the case that all Jewish people were true believers, but only a remnant. It's always been a remnant. Secondly, he asserts that it's always been the case that God has chosen individuals for salvation and left other individuals in their sin. He gives the example of four Israelites. Abraham was chosen out of all the world. Isaac was chosen. Ishmael was left in his sins. Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. And Moses was chosen. And Pharaoh was not. And so he's saying there, it has always been the case that God's choice in election has never been based on the deeds of those chosen, but according to God's free choice. Now that leads to one more objection, which is in reality the basis of almost all objections we hear to the doctrine of election to this good day. And it goes something like this, that's not fair. God has made me the way he has made me, and if he holds me accountable for the way he has made me, then he's wrong. You ever heard that objection? I heard it a week ago where a man that I know very well who's addicted to drugs told me that he has given up his fight against his drug addiction and he's just accepted that this is how God made him. 
See, man wants to be the standard of what's right and what's wrong. Man wants to be the arbiter of good and evil, the captain of his own moral vessel. We want to be able to say when we fail that God was wrong and we're right. I've never seen this more clearly than some years ago I was watching a presidential debate. The two candidates were asked the same question. What is your definition of sin? And the candidate that ended up winning the election said, sin is violating my own standards of right and wrong. Well, that's a bridge too far for Paul. And his response, really God's response, is not really an answer to the question. It is a rebuke to the attitude that I am the arbiter of right and wrong. So let's read it now. Romans chapter 9, beginning verse 19. Paul writes, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this his word. Now remember in answering these objections concerning the sovereignty of God in election, Paul is not using psychology. He's not using clever rhetorical skills. He's using scripture to prove his points. In our text today, he uses one of the most familiar and often used analogies in the Old Testament. And the imagery is of the potter and the clay. There are many examples of this in the Old Testament. I will read just two to prove my point. One from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are the father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And probably the most famous use, uses of the potter and clay imagery is in Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 6. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord is saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, and it pleased the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, we don't know much about pot making today. Maybe some of you do. I had a friend who made pottery on a wheel. And you put that lump of wet clay on that wheel and you press the pedal and you start it to spinning. And you can mold and make that lump of clay into anything you want it to make. And the image there is God is the potter. He's spinning the wheel, and we humans are simply the clay. Now, we could take this literally. Uh, the book of Genesis says that God formed our first parent, Adam, from the dust of the earth. But in this case, it's a metaphor. He's speaking of the attitude we should have that God is the creator, and we are the creature. He is the maker. We are what has been made. This is the most basic of all theological truths that we teach three-year-olds. Who made you? God made you. But if you don't have a catechism, you probably watch movies. And uh, one of my favorites is about college football. It's a story called Rudy. 
And it's a true story of a man in the 1970s who wanted to play for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. He was a tiny little guy, and he got no scholarship offers, but he walked on, and he eventually made the team and even got in for one series before he graduated. But a big part of the movie is Rudy's internal struggle with his faith. And one day when he's just about ready to quit, he goes to see his local priest, and he has these deep theological questions for the priest. And after the kindly old priest heard his story, he said, Rudy... He says, I've been doing this all my life and I only know two things for sure. There is a God and I'm not Him. Well, that is the most basic of theological truth. If you don't understand that God is God, you're not. You're not going to understand the rest of the Bible. Paul is putting out to his critics that their problem is not with Paul. Their problem is with God. They are thinking wrongly about God themselves and the application of that relationship between creature and creator. And so let's look at three, those three misunderstandings one at a time. Number one, the nature and revelation of God. Paul begins with a question, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? If I could uh, translate that for you, it's where do you get the nerve? For eight chapters, humanity has been on trial before God. He has been indicted, both Jew and Gentile, as a rebel, an idolater and a sinner. Suddenly, in an act of desperation, when he's backed into a theological corner, man attempts to put God on trial, accusing him of dishonesty, injustice, and unfairness. But don't forget, underline this, put it in bold in your margins, God is the potter, not us. God's not on trial, we are. Man is doing what he often does. He is denying that God has the right to rule and reign over his creation as pleases him. Because of the belief that if God is sovereign, that would violate man's sovereignty. And let me tell you something. God does have the right to rule and reign over his creation as he sees fit. And man has no sovereignty. God is sovereign, not man. And the an analogy is, is very simple. A child can understand it. The analogy is a hunk of mud saying to a master Potter, I don't like what you're doing with me. You're violating my will, and I demand you make me in a way that I approve of. This is the absurdity of judgmental clay. God is sovereign over his creation. He is in, infinitely superior in character to us, in knowledge to us, to wisdom to us, to power to us. It's laughable then that man should stand in judgment over God, though he attempts it every day on the calendar. In fact, it's, it's more than laughable. It's, it's downright absurd. So Paul, up until this point, remember, has answered the objections to the doctrine of justification by faith with arguments from history. Now he is making an argument from absurdity. And in this argument, if it seems familiar to your ears, it should, if you know your Bible. Because it is the same argument that God offers to Job over his objections to his condition. You remember the story of Job? Job was a righteous man. Things were going well for Job. His plantation was thriving. He was becoming a rich man. He had a wonderful family, lots of children, uh, lots of servants. And Satan went to God and asked permission. Don't forget that. God either causes or allows all things that happen, right? He asked permission to take these things away from Job 
under his belief that Job would curse God. In other words, Job was only serving God because things were going great. Take away the benefits, then he would curse God. Well, God allowed that to happen. Job's family was killed. His property was stolen. His own health was taken away. The scripture says he had boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He lived in sheer physical misery every day of his life. And finally, after this had gone on for some time, he demanded some answers from God. He didn't curse God. He just wanted to know why. Chapter 38 says, Then the Lord answered to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid the cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and a thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Now, I just read 11 verses. This goes on for two and a half chapters. God asked Job question after question. Job, did I ask your opinion about how deep to make the ocean? <laughs> and he goes question after question. And, and the point is, he is the potter and Job is the clay. So he misunderstood the nature and revelation of God. That's the same problem most people in the world have today. There's a second point here, and that is the nature and limitation of man. If God is the potter, in that analogy, that makes man the clay. Man is the thing made, not the maker. He says, the thing molded, that's man, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? It has been rightly said that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He also made man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Man's trying to remake God in his image. In other words, man, since the dawn of time, has tried to pull God down to his level and elevate himself up to God's level. Just, just a few examples of that. In the Garden of Eden, God had given Adam and Eve this perfect environment in which to live. He gave them one rule, one prohibition, don't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Eve was tempted by the serpent, but how did he tempt her? He said, has God really said, if you eat of this, you will die? You know, Eve, what God's doing, he's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat this, you'll be just like him. It's powerful and as knowledgeable as him. God is being unjust to you. He's suppressing your sovereignty, Eve. And she ate. She gave her husband, he ate, and sin's curse passed on the earth and on all of us. Trying to bring God down elevate themselves. What about the Tower of Babel? Same principle. God had told man to go forth and multiply after the flood, but what did man do? He stayed there in that one valley. He began to advance technologically and did not obey God. They all spoke one language and God came down and he scattered them abroad because God is the potter. We are the clay. Well, it's not just in the ancient world. There is secular humanism today that has dismissed God out of our public school system. 
out of our government and said, God, we don't need you. We'll take it from here. But the truth is, man is weak compared to God. Man is mortal. Man is finite. Man is limited in his knowledge. And because of that, how absurd that man would dare to stand in judgment over the omnipotent one, over the immortal one, over the infinite one, over the omniscient one. But that's what man attempts to do. Elevate himself, bring God down. And he's misunderstood the nature and the limitation of himself. He's also misunderstood the nature and revelation of God. He's got the roles reversed in the analogy of the potter and the clay. So finally, thirdly, let's look at the nature and the application of that relationship, that is relationship of the potter and the clay. Some may say, and I read several commentaries this week that accused Paul of avoiding the question altogether. They think Paul's copping out here by just saying, don't question God. Kind of like you parents who know you're backed in the corner with your kids and because I'm the parent, right? We do that sometimes. God's not desperate here. He is just saying that, that man is limited in his ability to understand. Paul's not avoiding the question. He's simply pointing out the absurdity that it would even be asked. And yet, as we read on in this text, God patiently and mercifully answers the question with a question. Verse 22, what if God, and by the way, um, you can write right above that phrase, what if God is because God has. That's what he's saying in the Greek. Because God was willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so, here's Paul answering the question, God answering the question through Paul's pen. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So here's the fundamental question. You ready? Why does God punish those he does not choose to save? That's the objection. Paul, God, if you made me like this, if you chose some people and not others, then you don't have the right to hold me accountable because I'm a victim of circumstance. Well, the potter does not owe the clay an explanation, Paul says. But even though they're not owed an explanation, God graciously here in these verses sheds a little light on the subject. One, he says he does it to demonstrate his wrath. I've told you we're studying the attributes of God on Wednesday night in this room at 6 o'clock. And we've looked at God's sovereignty that he has the right and he claims the right to rule and reign over his creation the way he sees fit. Last Wednesday night we looked at his immutability, which means he never changes, he cannot change. But we're going to get to, eventually, his attribute of wrath. That is God's determined will to punish all sins. It's his righteous indignation, his holy anger. And the attribute of God's wrath is just as much a part of He is as the attribute of His grace, right? And so God says that one of the reasons that He chooses to save some and not all is to demonstrate His wrath. That is, 
Uh, here, here is the fundamental, fundamental misunderstanding. Listen very closely. Here, here's what it comes down to when people don't like this chapter 9. It's the idea that if I believe that, you'd be saying that humanity is a bunch of robots and pawns. And that's not the case at all. We need to remember that man is a rebel by nature and by choice. So when God takes that lump of clay, he's not taking a, moral, a morally neutral lump of clay, right? He's taking a lump of rebellious humanity and disposing of it as he sees fit. All are guilty, Romans 3.23 says. Romans 6.23 has told us that the wages, what we've earned through that rebellion is God's wrath. All of us deserve God's wrath. The fact that any of us has shown mercy is owing to God's good pleasure. It's owing to who he is. Paul says that God has the right to do that as the potter. More importantly, God is saying that he has the right to do that through his word. No, the, the potter does not owe the clay an explanation of his disposition of it. But God graciously tells us, he gives us four reasons. Number one, to, to show his wrath. Secondly, to show his power. God is showing his power over sin by punishing it. In other words, we could put in parenthesis besides each of these reasons. He shows his wrath for his own glory. He shows his power for his own glory. He goes on to say, he also shows his patience for his own glory, his long suffering, meaning this. God does punish all sin, would you agree? But he doesn't often do it immediately. He's gracious and long-suffering and gives opportunity to repent. I'll just give you a couple examples through biblical history. God told Adam and Eve that the soul that sinneth shall what? Die. If you eat of this tree, you're going to die. And they ate of the tree. Did they die? Yeah, they're not here today. Did you know that Adam lived to be nearly a thousand years old? He let him live for 10 centuries before he ultimately died. God is merciful, patient, slow to anger. And I could give you hundreds of other examples in the Bible where someone shook their fist at God and he didn't kill them immediately. Now sometimes he does. He can do that, but rarely. And if you really want an example of this, someone that sinned and God didn't kill them immediately, go home and look in your mirror. How many of you didn't sin from last week's last amen until today? You're here. You're breathing. Your heart's beating in your chest. God is merciful and he's, he's patient. Fourthly, he says he does this to make known. I think this is the key to the whole passage. He does this to make known the riches of his glory to those he chooses to save. That is, the vessels of mercy. In other words, Paul is saying that those of us that God chooses to save could not appreciate the height, the depth, the magnitude, the incredible value of that salvation were it not for the fact that God shows wrath. If all of us, in other words, if, if universalism were true, that everybody goes to heaven, we wouldn't appreciate the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, would we? 
were it not set against the black backdrop of sin, we would think we deserved heaven. But because God sometimes shows wrath, it makes us grateful that he showed mercy to us. So he says he did it to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. You know who the vessels of mercy are? They're all of us who've been saved, right? That's us. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. And just as God gets glory by showing wrath, just as God gets glory by showing his power through judgment, just as God gets glory for showing his patience against sinners by not killing them immediately, he gets glory by saving his elect. Now, I mentioned Job earlier. Job was uh, demanding of God some answers why he allowed these terrible things to happen to him. And I said it goes on for two and a half chapters, and it does. But I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 40, where God stops speaking and gives Job the floor. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? It's not a good thing when God calls you the fault finder. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Be quiet, Job says to himself. God's right and you're wrong. He is the potter, you're the clay. I'm going to say something very hard to you. Real hard. And I've thought about all week how to say this in love. But I've been here 22 years. I've buried over 600 people. I've been in thousands of hospital rooms. I have been with your families in your worst moments. I have to tell this to you. If you're still resisting this doctrine, you don't want a God in those moments that I've just described who is sitting in heaven, wringing his hands, waiting to see if anyone is going to choose him. You don't want a God who is not sovereign over all of his creation, including you. You do not want a God who is surprised by natural disaster as you are, as I heard one famous pastor say. Let me get real personal. When your spouse is diagnosed with cancer, as some of you have experienced, you want a sovereign God. When your adult children are addicted to drugs and alcohol, you want a sovereign God. When you're down to your last dollar with no prospects of work, you want a sovereign God, don't you? You want a God who is able to follow through on his promise to make all things work together for good for those who love him. And I said we need humility, and we do, because these are things hard to understand, hard to accept, because they run cross-grain and cross-cultural of everything that, that we've been taught to believe. So let me leave you with uh, 
one verse from the Old Testament, book of Genesis, that has been incredibly precious to me for many, many years, that I have clung to when I don't understand why God's doing what he's doing. It's found in Genesis chapter 18. God is about to judge sin. And Abraham meets with God and Abraham shows concern that God might be unjust in what he's about to do. And begins to, he thinks, bargain with God and talk God down from the ledge. And, and then this question comes, shall not the judge of the earth deal rightly? If you're questioning God's justice or his mercy or his fairness even today, understand that the judge of the earth always does what is right. Even when you don't understand it, even if you disagree with what he did, he will always do what is right. We don't have enough information to stand in judgment over God. We don't have enough power to stand in judgment over God. We need to understand that he is the potter and that we are the clay. And it's absolutely absurd for the clay to stand in judgment over the potter. He does not need my advice. He does not need my opinion. He does not need my approval. He is the potter. We are the clay. But hear this. He is a good, righteous, merciful, omnipotent, trustworthy potter. And he will always do what is right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And it is a difficult word. It's a word that has divided families and churches over the years. But it need not be. Because the basic truth even a child can understand. God is the potter, we're the clay. We don't have the right to question him. We're not on his level, even though we pretend to be sometimes. He is omniscient. He knows everything. We are limited. He is infinite in wisdom. We are finite. He is altogether good. We are sinners. So, Father, may that bring us to a point of humility that Job experienced, where we put our hand over our mouth and we silence our own objections to God's sovereignty. Father, you do all things to show forth your glory. You show mercy to show your glory. You show wrath to show your glory. You show patience to show your glory. Father, we're glad that you're sovereign, even though sometimes we, we wonder. Because all of us are going to go through things, Lord, that are outside of our control. And we need someone on our side who is more powerful than those circumstances. There's likely people in this room right now who have recently been diagnosed with terrible diseases or their loved ones have. Some of them are facing financial ruin. Some of them, Lord, have a relationship that's so broken it seems that it can never be repaired. But Lord, you're sovereign. And you rejoice in showing your attributes. Lord, help us to remember most of all that no matter what happens, you always do what is right. We can trust you.
in this life and in all of eternity. We thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.